As we continue on into worship, we are going to take a moment um, to remember what this Memorial Day, what this Memorial Weekend observes. So um, please join us in prayer as Mike Hartsheim leads us. Thank you, Julie. Good morning, Lakeland. Memorial Day began as a day set aside to remember and honor those who died in service to their country. It has become a day that also recognizes and remembers all veterans and their families. If we have any veterans in our midst, active, retired, or family members, we invite you to stand at this moment. Thank you for your service. In our prayers today, we're going to give thanks for veterans, their families, those who have served, as well as those who are continuing to serve. We'll also be praying for those who are victims of war, for refugees, and for our leaders throughout the world. I will end each petition with the words, Lord, in your mercy. I invite you to pray with me with the words, hear our prayer. Those who are able are invited to stand at this time for our prayers. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, creator and sustainer of the universe. Today, we remember those veterans who gave their lives for our freedom, those who did not have the chance to grow old. The news on TV and the papers remind us of just how fragile life is, and we are grateful to you, Lord, for giving those veterans to us for the short time they walked this earth. We rejoice in the love that they gave. Lord, in your mercy. We remember and honor those who faithfully served and the sacrifices they made. We pray especially for the walking wounded, those who carry the scars of war, not just those scars that are visible, but the hidden as well. Lord, in your mercy. We remember and pray for those who continue to serve. Guide and protect them in their daily tasks. Give them unflinching courage to defend with honor, dignity, and devotion the rights of all who are imperiled by injustice and evil. Lord, in your mercy. We remember and honor and pray for the families and loved ones of our veterans. We thank you for their service and their sacrifices as well. Lord, in your mercy and your kindness, watch over refugees and victims of war, those separated from their loved ones, young people who are lost, and those who have lost their homes. Bring them back safely to the place where they long to be, and help us, always, to show your kindness to strangers and to all in need. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for our leaders and the leaders of all nations. May wisdom and sound judgment reign supreme. Where there is conflict, grant an early peace with victory, founded upon justice, instill in the hearts and minds of men and women everywhere, a firm purpose to live forever in peace and goodwill toward all. May they always seek the ways of righteousness, justice, and mercy. Grant that they may be enabled by your powerful protection to lead with honesty, 
and integrity. Lord, in your mercy. And finally, we pray for ourselves. Strengthen us to carry the torch of freedom. Let us never forget our veterans' sacrifices. We pray that the day will come when all your children can live in peace as you intend it. We pray that you will continue to watch over our men and women in uniform around the world. Bring them safely home to us. Lord, in your mercy. Into your hands we commend all for whom we pray. Trusting in your mercy, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I've been talking about uh, here for four weeks. Last week, we talked about what if there were no forgiveness. This week, what if there were no Jesus. Next week, what if there were no Bible. And the week after that, what if there were no concept of grace, which comes through Christianity. And so this week, it's what if there were no Jesus. And I don't know about you, but uh, whether it's out on the Internet or on uh, Bill Maher or somebody like that uh, or Richard Dawkins or somebody out there, an atheist or whatever, uh, or even philosophically, people will say like, you know, Christianity is the scourge of the earth. The Christianity, there would be, there'd be conflict and war. And the sooner we get rid of religion and Christianity in particular, and, you know, the better off the planet's going to be. And we are all going to move into that wonderful, blissful, peaceful, uh, you know, nirvana or whatever that we're all going to come to. And I, every time, I was just like, now, wait a second, wait a second. You mean, what if there were no Jesus? Because you can't really separate Christianity from Jesus. I mean, you can, which, but you can't. There's no Christianity without Jesus, right? What if there were no Jesus? Where would the world be? Where would we be without the parable that Jesus taught on the Good Samaritan? Even if you're not a Christian, you know, if you just watch Sports Center, you're going to hear about the Good Samaritan or a Hail Mary pass or any of the rest of the sort of Sports Center. I have a little thing about watching Sports Center and looking for religious metaphors in there that nobody knows where they came from, but they came from Jesus. Um, just my kind of little thing. It's a pastor weirdness. I mean, where would we have the parable of the Good Samaritan? Where would we have those words, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? Who would ever say something so crazy as that? What does that mean? Except without Jesus. What if, what if Jesus, what if that man had never stooped down in the dirt and drawn in the dirt while guys were standing there with rocks in their hands ready to stone to death an adulterous woman because of her adultery. And then Jesus says, each of you who have not sinned cast the first stone and they all leave. And finally it's just him and the woman and he stands up and he says, so where are all those that accused you? And she says, no one. No one's here. They're all gone. And he says, well, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Where would that paradigm of radical, radical, uncalled for acceptance and grace come from if it weren't for Jesus? Because in a dog-eat-dog world, the woman should have been, she should have been stoned in that culture. That's what the law said. But Jesus overcame the law. What if there were no Jesus... What if there were no Jesus, no one describing God as a father, as a parent, standing on their, their front porch, so to speak, waiting for a prodigal son to come home? Where do we ever get that image of God, as opposed to just some sort of distant, um, vague, creator of the universe, prime mover type thing? Only through Jesus do we get God being called a parent, 
a father, a relationship. That's what we get out of Jesus. Who without Jesus would have said, you know what really faith looks like to be a really good, awesome human being looks like? Is to hang out with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, adulterers, outright sinners, defiant ones, crooks, robbers, and all that sort of people. Where would we have gotten that that sort of idea in our human history? So when I hear from people saying, you know, religion needs to go away because it's the major, major source of misery in the world, I just have to stop and say, I can't really speak for all the other religions, but I know this, without Jesus, this world would not be a very good place. People will do great things, so don't get me wrong, I'm not saying secularists are all bad, that's not the point. People do wonderful things, but Jesus takes it to a whole new place. That's what I want to put to us this morning. Now, just before we start on how awesome Jesus is, <laughs> we all know, because you got the yeah, but going on right now in your head that says, yeah, but isn't Christianity responsible for all sorts of terrible things? You know, hasn't it been dragged into bloody wars and cruel crusades, power-hungry politics, exploitative economic policies, racism, bigotry, sexual abuse, suicidal cults. They're like, yes. Yes, it has been dragged into that. I would just personally contend that not one of those grave sins done by the church, by Christians, has ever been in the name of Jesus saying, I'm following exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, go sexually abuse children. Like, that ain't gonna happen. So I'm just saying those things that have happened in the name of Jesus and the church have all happened outside of the person of Jesus and Christianity, I would say. So we have to be careful to to take some of the stuff and say it's the entire thing. On the other hand, I propose that for 2,000 years because of Jesus, Christianity has been the source of major good in the world, not misery. And it was Jesus who said, if you want to know what kind of tree it is, then just look at the fruit of the tree. And so I'm going to offer you up a little fruit right here, and you can judge whether or not it's good or bad. Obviously, I'm going to be very selective because we are in church, and I'm a pastor, and uh uh-huh, you asked for it. First off, against genocide. Because of Jesus, Christianity has been the overwhelming moral force on the planet for the last 1,800 years against genocide. You know, wiping out an entire class or group or ethnicity of people. Just over the last 100 years, the last 20th century, okay? Over the last 20th century, 130 million human beings were put to death in the name of atheistic communism. That's what you get without Jesus. When you take Jesus out of the picture, 130 million people were wiped out. Moreover, they were wiped out because people wanted a perfect world. Whenever anybody wants a perfect world, they will do atrocious things to other human beings. You see, perfect is the enemy of good. Perfect is the enemy of good. And anytime somebody wants a perfect world where there are no sinners, there are no deformed people, there are no people of color, and they want everyone to look just the same, and they think that's going to be the most perfect world going, they will do atrocious things. Whereas if you have Jesus in the picture, he says, you know what? I will hang out with the worst of people. They all belong. We will not have a perfect world. We'll have a world where good is good enough. And we're all on our way and we're all on a journey. 
and we will not strive after perfection. Instead, we will measure ourselves by how much we've included the least of the least, not by how perfect we all are. Radical idea. Whether it be Hitler and Nazism, which wasn't communism, of course, it was fascism, or Stalin or Mao and the great proletariat cultural revolution, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, the likes of Idi Amin, North Korea's Kim Il-jong and his son, you know, Kim Song-un, Saddam Hussein, on and on and on. Every one of them wanted a perfect world to eradicate sin from the world or, or create a, a nirvana or a utopia. And they did terrible things. And Christians stood up against it. How about against infanticide? Ten-cent word there, infanticide. Historically, infanticide has been common practice in human history. Do you know that? Only recently has infanticide, because of Christian, Christianity, because of Jesus, uh, been virtually eradicated in a lot of ways. And I'm not just talking about abortion, I, you know, killing newborns. In ancient Rome, in Jesus' time, the very first Christians were the very first ones to start standing up against infanticide. Because in the Roman Empire, it was perfectly acceptable that if you had an, an unwanted newborn, the policy was, the procedure was, the custom, is that they would take it outside and set it on a tall wall and let nature take its course. In other words, the child, the newborn, would die because of exposure or whatever else would come along and pick it off. Those early Christians stood up against it and said, that's wrong. And Christians were ridiculed and made fun of at the time for this reason. They married, they took care of their children, and they stopped killing the infants. And people thought they were strange. Now, do you think that this is cultural interference? You know, all you Star Trekkies, is this violating the prime directive? You know what I mean? That shouldn't people be able to kill their newborn babies? You know, because we don't want to mess with their culture. In the name of Jesus, Christians have messed with people's cultures. In India, about 100 years ago or so, one of my favorite missionaries, William Carey, realized that in Indian culture, uh, a good wife was one who followed her husband into death. So if the husband died... The wife was lit on fire, alive, and burned to death. William Carey stopped the practice and protested it. He interfered. Because Jesus taught that all life is precious. All life is precious. He says, I have come to give life and give it abundantly. I'm all about flourishing and thriving in life. All right, next on the list would be for women. This is one of the things Jesus radically changed. Women's rights started with Christianity. All the way from Jesus redefining divorce, because you know he redefined divorce. In Jesus' time, in Judaism, a, a, a wife uh, could be written off with a piece of paper. You give her a writ of release, basically. And she just even, the rabbi said, even just for burning dinner, you could divorce your wife that easily. That's simple of a thing, Right? And, um, and so when Jesus said, God hates divorce, it wasn't that he was just hating divorce. He was saying the oppression of the women was what he was coming against. Even his own disciples said, well, what are you talking about, man? Like, what are we going to do without the ability to write our wives off just for cooking, burning dinner? And Jesus steps into that. 
and says women are worth more than that. During the lifetime of uh, Dr. James Kennedy, one of my favorite preachers from the last uh, century, he was in the Middle East and he saw four men playing checkers, he says. And he thought there were two men out in a field, uh, or uh, two oxen out in a field uh, pulling a plow. At least he thought it was two oxen until he realized that one of the oxen was a woman. And Kennedy says it was probably one of the wives of the men playing checkers. Because in the Middle East, in that time, and actually still today to some extent, you wives are your husband's best possession. Yes, you're the best possession. So husbands, on your next wedding anniversary, try and just write out a nice, wonderful card saying, Honey, you are my best possession. And let's just see how that goes over. She's your best possession. Jesus stood up for the rights of women. Next on the list, Jesus and Christianity virtually has abolished slavery. Unquestionably, slavery has been abolished solely through the efforts of Christianity, and particularly one man who is famous, William Wilberforce, inside the British Empire, died in about 1840, spent his entire life as a low-class parliamentarian in Britain fighting against slavery. He worked relentlessly, time after time. You can watch it in a film called Amazing Grace on William Wilberforce's life about his whole campaign of abolishing slavery. But because of one man in our modern day, slavery has been abolished. He stood against the slave trade and the industry for the colonies, both British as well as American. And one of my favorite quotes of the time comes from Lord Melbourne, who said this, Things have come to a pretty pass when religion invades public life. Things have come to a pretty pass, Melbourne said, when religion invades public life. And he said that directly against William Wilberforce in a smug, snarky little way, saying like, you religious people, what are you doing meddling with economics and things you don't understand? Go away. You don't understand the way the world works. We need slavery. And Wilberforce would not listen to it. And he invaded public life. And because of him and other Christians, we've eliminated slavery, at least in that form. And it still goes on somewhat today, and Christians are working effortlessly, effortlessly like on the, um, all the other initiatives out there, the international justice uh, ministries and so forth. Well, here's a weird one. Because of Christians, because of Jesus, following Jesus, cannibalism is pretty much gone off the planet. And you think, well, who'd have thunk? Cannibalism. But in Fiji, in 1840, a human life was worth $7. You could beat it, mop the floor with it, or eat it. And most people did the latter. $7, a human life was worth less than a cow or a gun in the middle of the 19th century in the, in the Polynesian cultures. Christians, once again, violating the prime directive, invading into people's... Uh, cultures came in and said it's not right you you can't kill other people for for (laughs) for the market these days there are 1200 churches out around fiji and you couldn't buy human life for any price because of jesus 
cannibalism is pretty much gone. Now, don't even get me started on public education, which was pretty much in this country, was started by John Adams, a very, very devout Christian. You can watch the miniseries on John Adams. He was the one who advocated mostly for, for public education out of Christian values that treated everyone equal. Even in our own constitution, Thomas Jefferson was told to put in there that everyone is created equal, given this by our creator. Because Jefferson didn't believe that. But other people, particularly John Adams, by the way, was very adamant on that sort of thing. Christians introduced medicine, medicine for everyone. Someone like Clara Barton during the Civil War started what we call now as modern-day nursing, started the Red Cross. And she was a Christian woman who just simply stepped in to take care of dying, rotting soldiers, the number one killer during the Civil War. Democracy, once again, because everyone should be treated equal, came about because of Christian values. The arts, the church has been the sponsor of the arts because they believe in beauty and worship. And despite what you learned in school, maybe even nowadays, science was started in the name of Jesus. Did you know that most science, when Galileo made his telescope or, you know, rediscovered the telescope because the Persians had done it a long time ago, and he looked up at Jupiter and he saw those four moons, he didn't say like, well, huh, ain't that interesting. No, he said, praise God. Because the universe just keeps unfolding and unfolding right down to the boss in these days. as saying like there's nothing that we can ever understand that God hasn't already figured out. Science is nothing but a huge songbook of worship. Started by Christians. Nearly all charities today are a product of the church in the name of Jesus World Vision, International Samaritan's Purse, Food for the Hungry, Christian Children's Fund, Compassion International, Providence House, Covenant House, YMCA, Salvation Army, on and on and on and on and on. Because in the name of Jesus, if there had been no Jesus, there would not be nearly any charity that there is these days. When, when Hurricane Andrew hit in 1993, the Miami Herald had a headline story called Holy Sweat. Church volunteers helped out with disaster victims. The same thing happened in the Midwest floods right here in our own backyard. Churches showed up in the name of Jesus because that's what Jesus would do. 2007, Katrina. Churches showed up. This church showed up. The, the tornado in Joplin. Christians showed up. This church showed up. On and on and on. The good in the world has happened because of Jesus Christ. The Giving Institute research discovers uh, when the survey, their data shows that churchgoers are more generous than secular people. Nothing against secular people. It's just that statistically the data shows that churchgoers, you guys, are more generous than the secular population. Every year Christians reach into their own pocket, just like they were even doing this morning. And they've contributed just about $15 billion a year just given away. To helping the homeless, the needy, the children, the poor, the suffering, elderly, housing, food. Gallup research, research shows, the Gallup organization research shows that Christian charitable work, volunteerism, equates to about $6 billion a year. Just work done gratis. 
And it also showed that Christian charities done in the name of Jesus are by far the most economically sound and conservative out there. Which, by the way, just as a tip, if you're looking at nonprofit charitable organizations, the administrative fee should not exceed 14% of everything done. Okay? Just giving that to you because I think oftentimes we don't know, like, well, they spend 40% of it on admin, on salaries and everything. Like, is that okay? Like, I don't know. Well, now you do. 14%, about 11 to 14% is what a nonprofit organization should spend on the administrative fees. Okay? Just a little sidebar there for you on the whole thing. Now, everything I just reviewed shows that despite Christianity at times being used by the power hungry and the governments to justify their ends, overwhelmingly, Christianity has been the number one force for good in human history for just about 2,000 years. But even inside of the Bible, everything changed. We went from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and I know being politically correct, we're not supposed to call it the Old Testament and the New Testament because it kind of sounds like we, you know, did away with Judaism or something like that. But I, I just have to simply say this. is nothing against that. Part of my family is Jewish. Uh, I'm just saying it did change. It, it changed. It, it radically changed from the Old Testament law when Jesus came in. Jesus began to redefine the Old Testament law. There was a group of moralists called the Pharisees, the religious leaders. I mean, these guys were uptight. They wanted a perfect world. They thought if they created a perfectly moral world according to the Old Testament law, that God would come back and make them the great nation that they were always thought they were supposed to be. Once again, it was a power move. I mean, the Pharisees, you know, made, uh, what's her name? Um, the Pharisees made uh, all sorts of uh, laws up about the whole thing to the point to where it was just crushing it was just a crushing, oppressive system. They set themselves up as the one going around saying, uh, da, 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 stop, da, don't. They had laws like you could only tie a knot halfway. Like if you're tying a granny knot, you could only tie half of it. They defined how far you could walk on the Sabbath, how many steps you could take. They took the Ten Commandments and turned it into over 600 laws. This makes Dolores Umbridge look like a peon at Hogwarts. You know, I mean... Rule after rule after rule. And then in walks Jesus, who redefining the Old Testament law, put it this way. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, because that's the Old Testament law. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. Oh, good, Jesus, thanks. Don't resist an evildoer. Okay, that's different than an eye for an eye for a tooth. Oh, wait, he's not done. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Turn the cheek. What? That's absurd. Needless to say, the Pharisees and even the common folk who heard the turn the other cheek speech thought that was the craziest thing going. You know, a uh, philosophy professor several years ago had his university students read the Sermon on the Mount as part of the coursework in uh, in a Western Civ class. And they read the Sermon on the Mount, and the professor thought they would hear these words like, anytime you call Jesus, when Jesus says, if you call your uh, neighbor an idiot, it's the same as murdering. If you look on a woman with lust, it's the same as having adultery with her. You should turn the other cheek. This sort of language, this professor thought, these students are going to think this is really revolutionary, moral, good stuff. They're going to be really impressed with Jesus. You know what they said? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. 
turn the other cheek. Look at a woman you've committed adultery with her. Calling somebody an idiot it's the same as murdering them, and on and on and on. The professor's like, wow, things have gotten worse than I thought. See, when Christians become like the Pharisees and become hypermoralist, they start going on witch hunts trying to point out everybody's faults, and it's going on these days. It's one of the critiques of Christianity, but it's not all of Christianity. It's certainly not following Jesus. Because Jesus was all about everyone finding life and flourishing and thriving. And that's why he said this. He said, for those who want to save their life, if you want to save your life, you'll, you'll have to lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake, for the gospel's sake of the, of the gospel, they'll save it. For what will it profit someone if they gain the whole world and they forfeit their very life? Life, everyone. That's what Jesus brought to the planet. That's what Jesus brought to the planet. More than a religion, Christianity is a relationship with God. We would not have this idea of God if it weren't for Jesus. That, to have, that you and I can have a relationship with God. Jesus introduced the human race to a relational God. God is a loving parent, a father, not some mean old sort of demigod sitting on some mountain somewhere or up in the clouds on some stone throne with a long beard and he's cranking. He's got a handful of lightning bolts and he's saying, all right, who's, who's messed up? You. You. Because that's what the Roman Empire had. Zeus. Would we still have that kind of an image of God if it weren't for Jesus? Moralism sure likes to creep back in pretty quick. Pretty quick, moralism creeps in. Jesus said that God is like a father waiting for prodigals to come home. Everyone comes home, according to Jesus. And the invitation is there. And that invitation was for me, too, when I was 16 years old, on a dark, cold January night, in my bedroom, in my parents' house, when I was kind of heading down a pretty wrong path, a really wrong path. And I could see my future ahead of me, and it was not pretty. And I didn't think about it. I didn't plan it. Something compelling inside me made me just fall to my knees next to my bed. And I came up with this prayer, the only thing that would come out of my mouth, which was, God, help me. I expected absolutely nothing. But instead... And I know it sounds hokey and it sounds corny, but something wrapped around me. I could feel it. And I didn't even know what to think about it. I was so surprised. And I crawled into bed that night and I thought, I wonder if this feeling will be gone in the morning. And it was not. It was there. And it was there all day. And the next morning, the same wrapped up feeling was around me. And the next day after that, the next day after that, and pretty soon my life began to kind of straighten out. And I found out there were some other people who had the same sort of weird wrap you up experience with God. And I started hanging out with them. And when I got up this morning, that feeling was still there too. This is what Jesus did for me. This is what Jesus can do for you. This is what Jesus is doing all around the planet right now, every hour, every minute changing human beings 
into people who are in love with other human beings and God. And I think it can be so for you as well. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I think the most important question we can ask this morning is still this. What would my life be like without Jesus? That's an important reflection. And I can only speak for myself. Is that I'm just living in eternity right now. I live with purpose. I live with calling. I live beyond myself. I live just beyond hobbies. And I live just beyond, you know, getting up each day and thinking like, I'm just going to entertain myself until I die. Each day has energy. Each day is a challenge. Everything matters. Everyone belongs. God is present. The ups and the downs, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the victories and defeats, it's all just fine. That's what Jesus does for people. So I ask you this. Who's guiding your life? What are you basing your life on? Do you have someone that you follow? Is there a mentor? Is there a philosophy? Is there a teaching? Is there anything like that? Or are you just going with a standard default answer that just says, I just get up each day and go through the motions and I call it good? Because there's more to it according to Jesus. And that brings us then to the communion, to the Lord's table right now. So if the servers want to come forward, that'd be great. This is our symbolic moment where we declare that Jesus is the most important thing in our life. This is where we declare Jesus is most important, that he's changed us. And it's perfectly fine, everyone, if this is not true for you. You're at Lakeland Community Church. There's nothing compulsory about having to come up here. If this is not true for you, then just stay in your seat. I think it's admirable for somebody who thinks, like, I'm not sure I believe in Christianity or this Jesus thing and all the stuff you guys talk about. I'm not sure I believe. Then stay in your seat because that's a person of conviction, and I find that very admirable. Now, for the rest of us, we have a conviction that says, I belong to Jesus, and I'm going to reaffirm it right now. I'm going to come forward because, because Jesus is like my food. He's my bread. My faith in Jesus is my very life. If I don't have it, I starve to death. And that's why Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it after giving thanks, and he handed it out to his disciples. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the covenant between you and me and the world. My blood, my sacrifice, this is what binds us together. This is what you should go do. You too, you too belong to this cup, he says. Drink it. And as often as you do, you do it in remembrance of me. And that's how we remember Jesus. Would you stand with me, please? And let us pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And once again, if this prayer is not your prayer and you're not there, then this watch the rest of us do it. This is not just a reciting some dead prayer, everyone. This is a prayer, so let us pray it all together, everyone, okay? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith, everyone. Together, Christ has died. 
Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover sacrifice for us, everyone. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink is right now in this symbol. Come forward whenever you're ready. Tear off a piece of the bread. Dip it in the chalice. Consume it right there. You can kneel by the sides if you want, but go back to your seat and we'll wrap things up. Come forward when you're ready. And now, Lord, you've fed us with spiritual food and you're going to send us out into the world to be your hands and your feet and your eyes, your voices to a world that I think sometimes just doesn't believe that you're the best thing going. And so, Jesus, inspire us this week. Fill us up and send us out. And we all said, amen.